This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The homeless encampments at the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melania Cass Boulevard, nicknamed Mass and Cass, continues to vex Boston's mayor and city council, local residents, and of course, the unsheltered people living on the street. But our local encampment phenomena is one shared by many other cities across the country, from San Francisco to New York, provoking broad, stern calls for solutions that address both the threats to civil order and quality of life, and the needs and humanity of those in the encampments. While many see the unsheltered as an unmistakable call for publicly provided housing, those who study the issue more closely caution that for many residents of encampments, living quarters with little or no requirement for wraparound addiction and mental health services can be at best an unused resource and at worst, a deadly gift. What can be done to put an end to homeless encampments in a way that both serves the safety and quality of life of neighborhood residents, while also offering constructive care for our most vulnerable citizens? My guest today is a senior fellow and director of research at the Manhattan Institute, Dr. Judge Glock, whose recent article in the summer issue of City Journal entitled End of the Encampments offers an outline of the range of nationwide policy responses to large urban homeless settlements. Dr. Glock's research examines how encampments became a recent feature in American cities, what are the profiles of the residents of these sites, and what remedies have been effectively employed in other cities to serve the civic needs of residents and the practical and therapeutic needs of the unsheltered. He will share with us his views on how cities like Boston could better address encampments such as Mass and Cass in a politically feasible way. When I return, I will be joined by Manhattan Institute's Director of Research, Dr. Judge Glock. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by the Director of Research and a Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, Dr. Judge Glock. Welcome to Hubwonk, Judge. Thanks so much for having me. All right, I'm pleased to have you on the podcast. Um, you work and write for the Manhattan Institute. I'm in Boston. Um, uh, I don't know if I speak for all uh, Bostonians, but uh, for me, uh, we have a uh, a regard that's bordering on reverence for New York and New Yorkers in that you have all the problems we have here in Boston and other smaller cities, but you uh, have to solve them on a much, much larger scale. Um, one of the issues that uh, seems to trouble both New York and, and Boston is this issue of of homelessness, and more particularly, what seems to be a more recent phenomenon is the phenomena of homeless encampments, large groups of homeless um, living together on the street. Um, uh, it's an unfortunate feature of other cities, not just Boston and uh, New York, but San Francisco, Portland, and New York. Um, this, from, from my eye, as someone who's lived in a city for a long time, it seems to be these homeless encampments seems to be a relatively recent phenomena. Is it so? And if so, why is it a, a, a phenomenon? It, it is a recent phenomenon, and it is somewhat astounding. Uh, but unfortunately, I haven't been able to find a lot on exactly when this became common or how it spread. I saw, I think, one single report from the federal government that kind of looked at the rise of homeless encampments, but it was pretty sporadic. But yeah, anyone who's lived in an American city for a number of years or especially for decades, uh, looking back, would really have to rack their minds to think of see a large encampment, say, in the 1990s. Many of these cities, like New York, Boston, or, or Chicago, or Los Angeles, uh, maybe being one of the few exceptions, 
didn't have large encampments until very recently. The idea that uh, someone who is homeless uh, could get together with a group of other people and set up large tents, large piles of their own possessions, and just occupy a public park or a sidewalk for, for months or years was somewhat foreign to these cities. Again, even when they were kind of in the midst of an intense urban crisis in the 1980s and early 1990s. Um, there, we can talk about the combination of reasons that these encampments have, spe have spread, uh, but one certainly is that many cities have just considered them acceptable in a way that basically no city in America uh, would have 30 years ago. So it's a complex problem. Uh, so let's try to unpack it and, and, and break it into its elemental forms. Um, you know, there's no sort of common homeless scenario. There are people are are um, homeless for many reasons, everything from severe mental health to someone who's been evicted for missing a few rent payments. Um, do you have the numbers of, let's say, when we think about homeless or I don't you've gone deep on the homeless encampments. Are those people the sort of transitionally homeless or are these, you know, you know, severe cases of people who have severe problems? Uh, the, the people in encampments, it tends to be the latter, people with substantial long-term problems. And so this is very important, what you pointed out, the, the distinction in general between uh, the short-term homeless and the long-term homeless. Uh, the short-term homeless are much more likely to be sheltered. Uh, in fact, when we think of homeless in our, our minds, we do think of the people on the street. But almost two-thirds, now I think the most recent number is about 60% of the homeless are in shelters, some sort of uh, inside facility where there's usually services, there's some amount of security, uh, there's uh, some amount of structure. Uh, and it's about 40% that are the unsheltered. But the sheltered portion, almost half of those are, are families, largely single mothers with children. Uh, so, and a lot of them are in the shelters, depending on which city you look at, for a few weeks or a few months. Sometimes they come back pretty frequently, but it's often, you know, just a few weeks is, is the typical stay in a shelter. Now, if you look at the people on the street, uh, the, the unsheltered or the people in camps, there you're talking about where large percentage and sometimes a majority have been out on the street are homeless for more than a year. Uh, when you also look at the sort of problems they report, they are usually orders of magnitude greater than the people in the shelters. Now, one survey that the UCLA uh, did of uh, the unsheltered in a bunch of different cities uh, found that about 75% reported having a severe mental health problem or substantial mental health problem, not necessarily schizophrenia or bipolar, which are usually treated as the two main uh, mental health issues, but a substantial mental health problem. And about 75% uh, also reported a substantial substance use issue. And a majority of both said that substance use or mental health was one of the reasons that contributes to the law, their loss of housing. These numbers were, you know, sometimes almost an order of magnitude lower among the sheltered population. Uh, so yes, people on the street, uh, as most of your listeners or viewers would know, uh, do tend to have severe uh, uh, alcohol or drug addiction issues and substantial mental health problems. A lot of the homeless, more activist crowd will, will note that minority uh, of the, the entire homeless population has these problems, and they're correct. But the, I think the important thing is to look at that difference between the long-term and unsheltered and the more short-term and sheltered. And right now, the, of course, uh, what we're talking about in the most severe problem is among those unsheltered, especially those in encampments. Good. I'm glad we defined terms because, as you say, activists may want to conflate uh, unfortunate homeless families who are temporarily un uh, unhoused but sheltered, 
right? They have a roof over their head. They're characterized as homeless. And the uh, those in an encampment are are homeless. They're two different animals, as as we'll characterize in, in this in this conversation. I want to point again then to those people who are unsheltered, who are on the streets. But there's two scenarios. One, let's say the good old days, uh, let's say 10 years ago, when those would be individuals on individual corners. We we all encounter them as urban dwellers, uh, and those who are in encampments. In the abstract, do homeless people, when they're concentrated, let's say rather than being dispersed throughout a city, if they're all concentrated in one area, and let's say permitted, allowed to live amongst each other, um, does that the harm or the influence of their community get compounded or is it minimized? In a sense, do you sort of contain the problem by creating an encampment uh, where you might otherwise disperse that problem? Or is, is a net benefit or net harm when you concentrate these, as you say, you know, people with drug or mental health issues? What's your perspective? It, I mean, it, it's hard to disentangle. It's certainly dependent on the place in the city. Uh, what we do know is that cities with large numbers of unsheltered homeless, where usually in those cases they're they're living in encampments. We're we're talking especially about Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, a lot of the ones on the West Coast uh, where the weather is nicer. And there's not a it's not a coincidence, of course. There is a very strong correlation between. Um, average temperature and how many unsheltered you have in these cities. There is either a pull effect out of the shelters on the street or an actual pull effect from other cities and other states into uh, those areas that do have nicer uh, temperature. Uh, for those areas that see, it's not all, again, uh, the unsheltered and probably the majority are from the, the city itself when they're in, but large proportions and maybe a, a, in some cities a, a majority uh, are coming from elsewhere. So in those areas that have large encampments, we do see incredible rates of death. Um, what I often cite is the city of Los Angeles has now seen over 2,000 homeless deaths a year. Uh, that's about four times what it was a decade ago when the city used to have a, a stricter enforcement regime. For a long time, uh, in the early 2000s, in fact, uh, Los Angeles was known as a city that had really done a, a sort of yeoman's work reducing homelessness with a combination of enforcement and moves to shelter and, and alternatives and so forth. Uh, but in the last 10 years, they've really uh, decided to allow these encampments to spread. You've seen the equivalent increase in deaths. Uh, and uh, one of the statistics I cite most frequently is that about a quarter of all murder victims in Los Angeles are homeless. Uh, that's for about 1% of the population is homeless. So that should tell you everything you need to know about how dangerous these encampments are. We don't have the numbers separated from the sheltered or the unsheltered or the encampments or single, but overwhelmingly these murders are not happening in shelters. They're happening in these large encampments that are spread over sometimes blocks or uh, uh, along city streets. And as we know from the overdoses, from the murders, et cetera, this seems to be incredibly dangerous for the people who are living there. Indeed, you you answered my uh, my next question, which was, you know, are these encampments dangerous to the people who live in them? It seems intuitively obvious, but if you're citing numbers like 2,000 a year, that's, that's six a day, That that's, you know, six human beings dying uh, where, it, you know, because those encampments are per permitted. Um, now, I, I appreciate this issue can be very divisive. You've talked about being in front of activists and, and not, not coming to much of an agreement. But what surprises to me, uh, for me, is that there's no clear, let's say, partisan or political divide, given that almost all cities, you know, from dog catcher to mayor, everybody's a Democrat. So you don't have, let's say, right-left divide, but you have, let's say, competing narratives as far as 
you know, what you do about homelessness, right? You, 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 uh, you have this problem. Everyone acknowledges a problem. We here in Boston know we have a problem, but there's still two different competing, uh, not two, but many, but let's, let's sort of try to simplify a little bit. Um, what are the competing narratives as to why people are homeless and how you solve homelessness? Yes. Yeah, so the, the, I would say the main current narrative uh, is probably best encapsulated by the title of a book that's received a lot of attention recently called Homelessness is a Housing Problem, that homelessness almost by definition is the absence of a house so that we could, quote unquote, solve homelessness if we provided all of the homeless with a house, often subsidized or, or government provided. Um, that model of solving homelessness is often known as the housing first model, which is uh, especially focused on those out in the streets, those who have been homeless for a long time, and the goal should be to give them a permanent house, uh, usually subsidized or free, uh, with no treatment requirements whatsoever, with the understanding there that that could deter people from moving off the street and into the house. And once they are in the house, they will begin to solve their problems because their problems in this activist vision are largely caused by the street itself, by the absence of uh, the house. Uh, so there are some issues with this vision. One, I would not disagree at all that there is a correlation, a connection between how high housing costs and rents are in a city and homelessness. Cities like Boston, like New York, like uh, San Francisco and LA that have higher rents do tend to have higher homelessness. That is pushing a lot of families and individuals who would be on the edge into homelessness. But as far as we can tell, it seems to have a much larger effect on the sheltered in the short-term population than the long-term unsheltered population. The reason some cities get very large encampments isn't likely just because of rental costs. Uh, it is because of these other factors about enforcement, about prevalence of drug use and mental health problems, et cetera. Um, and importantly, I think it doesn't seem to be substantially solved by providing a lot more of what's known as the permanent supportive housing or, or these housing first units. Uh, now, one of the, the simple reasons that I've discussed uh, for why this isn't a solution is because uh, these people with substantial mental illnesses or drug addiction problems don't necessarily get better in these housing units. Um, in San Francisco, one of the stats I, I also use often is that 11% of the entire homeless population, their last address was a subsidized housing unit. They were already put inside, and because of their demons, the things they were continuing to wrestle with, they could not stay inside. Uh, they left and returned to the streets again. Uh, we also see death rates, unfortunately, in these, uh, in these units be incredibly high. Uh, Boston... I actually did an experiment, uh, and they had a recent study came out that showed uh, they put a lot of uh, long-term homeless in these uh, housing first units, and after 10 years, almost half had died. Um, so these housing first, no treatment units do not tend to be solving the, the problems in the city that uh, try them. They don't seem to solve the individual's problems. There also seems to be a very low correlation or connection between how much a city builds and how much homelessness drops. There seems to be very little. Uh, cities like San Francisco have built enough permanent housing, subsidized housing for the homeless, to house every single homeless person when they started. Uh, but the problem's obviously only gotten worse. 
this means some people get attracted from outside. Some people would have been housed otherwise are now staying in these, these subsidized units. And you don't have uh, the sort of long-term solution uh, that a lot of those housing first advocates had hoped for. I want, I want to drill down because you've touched on a, a couple of major points that I think our listeners need to understand. First, you did a very good job of, of course, uh, separating out what we were talking about, those in encampments with severe disabilities, be they drugs or mental health, and those temporarily, the, the sheltered homeless that we identified early on, and saying that housing first, um, you know, whereas intuitively, if you're homeless and you get a house, you're no longer homeless, uh, it, it's not as, as simple as it sounds. You're, what you're saying is, that when a, a, a severely disabled uh, homeless person, you know, with mental health or drug issues gets put into a, a, a home, uh, often it doesn't work out well. As you mentioned, a study in Boston where 10 years after that home, they're either back on the street or no longer alive. Um, but I also think there's something you, you didn't point out, which is in my research on the, uh, the housing first, it seems that because they're so focused on that house, they seem to uh, elide, their solution elides all other um, problems, which are um, support for mental health, support for um, uh, drug addiction, all the other attending what you call wraparound services that, that could help someone in a long-term way. Meaning if, if your view is eclipsed, the housing first is eclipse, eclipsing all other wraparound solutions, you really are throwing both ends of a rope to a drowning person, right? You know, say more about that. Exactly. And so a lot of activists, I think, to my mind, will correctly note that housing first does not mean housing only, and that ideally these permanent housing units are accompanied by all of these services. Uh, but just in practice, we know what happens usually is that the funding and uh, the focus of the service providers is on creating the house, and then the services get neglected. Now, the other side of that, though, is that a lot of people in the units, even if the services aren't pro are provided, they don't take them up because not surprisingly, people with severe mental health issues or addictions often either don't know they need to get better or they don't want to. Uh, there was a recent pretty disturbing report uh, in The New Yorker, an extensive article on one of these permanent housing uh, programs in Brooklyn, and they celebrated supposedly in this article all of the uh, the things that the housing was supposed to do to get the people better. But then they noted somewhere in that that 16 people had died over the course of just a few months in the unit, largely from of over overdoses. Um, that most of the people in the building were avoiding the services provided and the caseworkers who were supposed to connect them to it had to chase them down and that they would the, the inhabitants would run away again because they often wanted to um, if they were mentally ill, didn't know they needed help, or their addict, they wanted to continue uh, in their addiction. Uh, and, and finally, one of the things that I think is underestimated here is that the way these units are currently provided, these housing first units, is that addiction is considered a disability for many of them, in that if you are staying clean on the street and you are trying to get your life together, you will not uh, you often cannot get one of these units. If you can prove that you are injecting heroin, uh, if you are doing methamphetamines, you will then be eligible for the units. The main character in this New Yorker story, in fact, uh, they noted that she was only eligible for this free apartment, a very big gift in New York because she did heroin. 
which is exactly the wrong message you should be sending someone on the street who's trying to get their life together. Uh, you know how to get how to get into a housing unit? Continue doing heroin. If you're clean, you're not going to get ahead. And that's unfortunately that message has come out onto the streets, and people are aware of it. That, that's incredible, although it undermines my next question, which was to say uh, there were some studies where it talked about these housing first units being built. Let, let's use round numbers. There were a thousand uh, um, homeless, unsheltered homeless. They built a thousand homes. They had a thousand residents in those thousand homes. And magically, they still had a thousand homeless people on the street, which suggests those people are coming from elsewhere, um, which, you know, in contrary to your last statement, you can imagine there's very low criteria for for one earning a free house, meaning you you know the application can't be too elaborate. Uh, you don't want to screen out the most needy. So uh, not, to the surprise of no one, the people who take those quote unquote free homes in very expensive cities are often people who were otherwise not homeless. Can you say something? You know, does that undermine your last remark? Well, not that they weren't necessarily homeless. It's people that either would have recovered on their own or they were often coming from elsewhere. Uh, so it it depends on the city you look at. But you have places like Seattle that found that in one study a few years ago that a majority of the, uh, the homeless in the city were from outside of Seattle. It's not uncommon in places like Austin, Texas, to have over a third coming from outside the city. And again, if you separate that into the unsheltered, which we don't have the great numbers on, we're likely talking about a larger majority because the sheltered, again, tend to be more local and tend to be uh, uh, more uh, families and so forth. Uh, so you have that that attraction effect of it. And you have the fact that some people who maybe we're going to get better on their own, we're going to move outward. And then you also have the unfortunate effect. And it's very, I admit it's very hard to disentangle and to understand how the, these things contribute. But you have the effect of more people are attracted into the homeless system and will remain in it if they have the opportunity to get one of these, these housing units or if they have substantial benefits uh, from it. And precisely if the homeless system is encouraging this sort of behavior we're supposed to ideally be treating, uh, that's going to just increase the number of people with those problems, increase the number of people who would need help. Uh, I mean, I'll mention in, in one of my articles, I mentioned... Uh, for your viewers and, and listeners in, in Massachusetts, I found a Massachusetts uh, point system for how they determined who was most in need to get these free housing units. Um, and the points said you got four points towards a house if you were uh, currently abusing drugs and not in recovery. That was down to one point if you had been in recovery for a year. So it's much harder if you've been in recovery for a year, but you get a bonus two points if you've overdosed in the past 12 months. Now, again, for anyone sensible outside the system, this seems mind-boggling. You are literally telling people uh, the more you overdose, the more uh, likely you are to get a house. And uh, that's obviously, when I say sending the wrong message, it's actively incentivizing people to both be homeless, to be on the streets, and to abuse drugs, uh, which is exacerbating the very problems it's trying to solve. Indeed, that uh, sounds like uh, government incentives 101. Uh, very, very crazy. So um, you mentioned Boston. Uh, you actually, uh, I, was, I was pleased to learn that you actually wrote a piece uh, for a local uh, policy magazine. It's called uh, Commonwealth Magazine for our listeners. It's an interesting uh, publication uh, with our with our colleague at Pioneer, uh, Charlie Chippo, about um, our problem. We call it Mass and Cass. It's the uh, encampment, our local encampment here at the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melania Cass Boulevard, we call it Mass and Cass, 
Uh, you you offered some new uh, some ideas. This was back in 2021. And then we had a new mayor. We still have Mayor Wu uh, with ideas on how uh, we could um, let's say uh, deal with the challenge of mass and cast. This was at the peak of of COVID, so perhaps there was some uh, permission structure around being outdoors during uh, uh, during lockdowns. Um, uh, what can you say about your analysis back then? And I don't know if you've revisited the issue and looked at Boston since then, but. Uh, how did you see it, uh, you know, as a, as a Boston specific issue? Well, I mean, one of the things I, I remember looking into that issue back then is that around 2020, you had seen a substantial reduction in the number of shelter beds in Boston. And that was not uncommon in a lot of the United States in 2020 and 2021. As you mentioned, COVID was uh, uh, an overweening issue right then. Now, one of the little noted side effects of, of the CDC, the Centers for Disease, Con Disease Control and Prevention at the time, uh, when they were involving themselves in all sorts of uh, aspects of American life in terms of where we should go, masking, um, evictions, and so forth, is that they recommended uh, extreme distancing, social distancing in shelters uh, at the time. And uh, we know a lot of cities and shelters took them up on this and reduce, they reduce the increased social distancing by reducing the number of shelter beds, which to my mind was the classic CDC problem of them uh, focusing only on the narrow issue of COVID and not considering all of the other problems that were prevalent at the time. Perhaps for somebody who uh, had the alternative of living in a shelter or living out on the street uh, had bigger problems than just getting COVID. Uh, and throwing someone out on the street for the danger they can get COVID seemed to me like a, a bad idea. Uh, so one of the things I suggested is making sure that those um, the shelter capacity was there. You Making sure, I don't know where Boston's at now, but a lot of cities have not returned to their full shelter capacity since COVID, and that would be necessary. Um, clearing the mass and cast encampment, like other encampments, will involve enforcement. That means the police telling some people that you cannot live and you cannot stay indefinitely in a public space that is made for everyone and not just for one group of people. As it's been enforced, that similar sort of enforcement pattern uh, has been used in many places. Ideally, that's done with minimal arrest, that's done with referral to services and shelter, and if there is insufficient shelter available, finding some place for people to go. I've been an advocate in extreme situations of sanctioned campsites with, uh, with shelter, with services, with security, um, minimal shelter, perhaps just a, a roof uh, to protect from the heat or the sun, and where people can bring in their, their three Ps as they're known, the pets, possessions, and partners. Um, you know, for, for people who don't have anywhere else to go and who need an alternative to the streets, that's not ideal, but it is better than the current situation, which is a totally unsanctioned, unsupervised, unpoliced encampment uh, in broad public uh, daylight affecting not just them, but the entire city that surrounds them. Uh, the activists who claim that you cannot do that enforcement and claim that we merely have to wait uh, for until we have enough free housing for everyone, to my mind, have never sufficiently answered the question of, well, what do we do in the next decade or so until that happens? Forgetting the question for a second of whether or not that free housing is actually going to solve the homelessness out in the streets, partially because people, again, leave them often or die in them, um, or partially because it attracts people into them. But even the most optimistic advocates of the housing first admit often, hey, this is a program that's going to take 
10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And if their solution is, well, we have to let these massive encampments exist and these incredible rates of death continue for a few decades until we do something, I think to my mind, that's just clearly not a compassionate or feasible solution. But it's the one many activists continue to cite uh, to this day. It seems, uh, of course, we, we focus on, I think rightfully, the people who are actually in those encampments. It's not uh, good for them. Uh, but of course, the communities that they're in, we often uh, ignore when we talk about incarceration rates and the, the, the plight of the incarcerated, we ignore the fact that uh, the community that they're in uh, suffers greatly from their uh, the crime or the you know just a human waste on the street. Or, you know, again, imagine this uh, encampment in, in front of your house. Uh, it, it's an unpleasant uh, experience for everyone. You mentioned police. I, I imagine if, if you have rules, you have to enforce rules, and some people ref refuse that. So uh, there's some intervention. What 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 role does let's say some sort of institutionalization have here? Uh, let's say someone, as you say, someone who's a drug addict or um, um, mentally ill doesn't, you know, there's no way out. So one uh, a compassionate society perhaps might intervene. Now I say this as a sort of a, 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 a with libertarian um, leanings. I'm suspicious of government intervention, but here I'm saying, can we imagine it? Let me bring up something I just read about uh, in in our uh, very, very blue uh, California. Governor Newsom talks about uh, uh, characterizing some people as, I think it's called gravely disabled, where you would, in a sense, have permission to intervene on behalf of the state and say, look, this person is so disabled because of drugs or mental illness that we must institutionalize them. Where is that story in, in, in your imagination? Uh, the the one the the individuals with severe mental illness and I'm talking again about a very narrow subset now not just those with substantial other issues but basically with bipolar disorder schizophrenia or to some extent uh, advanced depression uh, those individuals are a substantial minority of the homeless population as everyone knows not the majority even of the unsheltered likely but those with the very severe potentially committable mental illnesses, that's a substantial minority of the population. Now, if you, I think everyone agrees from the bluest to the reddest, to the most libertarian to the most interventionist, that if somebody is schizophrenic and literally is running naked in the streets into traffic, uh, we can't just let that person eventually be killed by his or her mental illness uh, uh, before we do something. We don't have to say that this person is screaming uh, and saying they're gonna set fire to everybody and thinks that a demon is talking to him uh, before saying someone needs to step in and help that person get better. Even that person, usually in a different state of mind, will then say, of course I needed help to get to this point in my life. Uh, I've been an advocate for increased mental health commitment, uh, expanding the number of, uh, of psychiatric beds available uh, to stabilize people. Most. Uh, most definitely. A lot of people have kind of an image of the one flew over the cuckoo's nest where it's, uh, you know, someone's put in the institution for decades and decades. And that's really not what the few remaining psychiatric beds in America do. They're a way to get people for a few months, ideally, to stabilize and make sure they're taking their medication to make sure you know how to, how to treat them. And then ideally putting them uh, um, back in a better situation with some amount of medication and uh, therapy help. So increasing the ability of the government to do that uh, to get those people in that uh, that severe state is going to help reduce homelessness uh, because without that, you're going to have the, the person who is moved into that housing unit and two months later is out on the street again because they're scared of their neighbors, they're scared of the uh, being confined, et cetera. Uh, and that has to be part of the entire homeless solution because uh, there's no uh, 
feasible solution for a lot of those people outside some sort of sort of structured commitment. Now, in your analysis of all cities across this, the country, some perhaps the Boston size, you, you know, let's set aside, as you mentioned, those who perhaps ought to be institutionalized owing to you know, severe mental illness. What about for those people who, who can be re rehabilitated, perhaps it's a drug-related issue or uh, just they've fallen out of the workforce? Uh, are there uh, uh, cities that are successfully helping to reintegrate people, either with um, through nonprofits who are doing either um, uh, drug rehabilitation or uh, job training, or you know, it, it could be anything from a nonprofit, maybe even a faith-based nonprofit, to heal the mind, body, and soul. You know, to help people find their way back into, let's say, uh, reintegrate into a society. Is, is there anyone doing it right across the country that you know sort of is is actually saving these these people? Uh, yes, and I, I just add one more thing, actually, about the mental health before I move on to that, just to say that. Ideally, a lot of what mental health commitment today is, is known as assisted outpatient treatment, where they're not inside an institution. Again, maybe they're stabilized in there, but they're outside where a judge supervises their treatment regime, makes sure they take their, their medication and uh, so forth. Uh, therefore, you don't necessarily have to have everyone or shouldn't have everyone in these, in these institutions. But in terms of the drug treatment, yes, frankly, there, there are a lot better ways. And to my mind, again, the, the worst one is just putting a heroin addict in a house and telling them, hey, if you want treatment, it's downstairs and kind of crossing your finger and hoping for the best. Uh, what we've seen is, is a lot of what's known as recovery housing. It seems to be fairly effective. Uh, groups like Oxford House, they get a lot of, a few people, and let's say half a dozen in a small suburban style house, house, all of them trying to recover from an addiction. They support each other, they have to work. Uh, they try to help each other move to the next stage of life. And that social support in sobriety is very essential. Uh, you have a lot of places like, um, to my mind, one of the most amazing is, is Salvation Army, uh, which uh, their adult rehabilitation has short-term residential stays for people where your life is very structured, where you have to stay clean, where a condition of you staying there is that you uh, stay clean, and those seem to be very effective, even though, of course, you see a lot of people cycling in and out of them, and it's tough for the addicts to stay in there, especially their, their first time. But for those who go through, you do see incredible reductions in, in addiction. Uh, those have real trouble getting funding now, precisely because the homeless housing first model is zero requirements on treatment. And I emphasize that, I've already emphasized that, but then you cannot the, the typical homeless money does not go to something like the Oxford Recovery House, uh, house uh, model, uh, even though Congress passed a bill in 2018, a bipartisan bill to try to fund a little more of it. But the typical homeless funding doesn't go to that precisely because, hey, their sobriety is part of the requirement. Uh, but to my mind, that's exactly the best thing you can do if you have a house available, you're trying to get someone together. Use the house as an incentive to help people move their life on as opposed to just a new place to do heroin or something else, which is, again, is not helping uh, those people that uh, get put in. And does your research at all, again, uh, we're gonna wrap this up. Um, we talked about the sheltered, uh, those people on the the edge, uh, we say there's a correlation between the housing prices and uh, homelessness. Do you see sort of, uh, again, maybe this isn't your uh, area of expertise, but uh, we're an advocate here on Hubwonk for, um, um, let's say, looser zoning uh, requirements whereby uh, less expensive home housing can be built so that there are places for people who don't make a lot of money but still live and work in Boston or in a city. Uh, is, is there anything that you've read that suggests um, more houses means fewer homeless? 
Yes, uh, and and actually, ironically, this is probably more of my focus than than homelessness. Even uh, it, my my dissertation uh, in grad school was on the history of the U.S. mortgage market and how housing policy has has been uh, uh, messed up in so many different ways in America, and that includes, of course, excessive restrictions on building in America's cities. Yes, and. and I, I am in 100% agreement with those act activists and uh, uh, others who point out that increasing housing prices is going to increase homelessness. And the only way to reduce housing prices over the long term is to increasingly allow more building in places. That's going to be the only thing that reduces those rent prices in general. Now, again, that will affect a lot more of the short-term sheltered and so forth than the people with the most severe mental health and, and drug addiction problem. But it is going to help more people get inside in general. And that's also going to, to some extent, help those people from falling off that bottom rung of the ladder to the point where they're out on the streets and all those other problems are exacerbated. So yes, improving the housing market, allowing more building is going to be an essential part of the whole puzzle to reduce homelessness. Not the only one I'll, I'll definitely emphasize, but an important part. Well, this is a complex issue and uh, you've written extensively on it. I hope our listeners, uh, uh, again, with with winter coming, uh, this is Boston. We want to uh, uh, talk about this before uh, before people are, are freezing in the snow. Uh, where can our listeners who from who you've piqued their interest about this topic, where can they learn more about your research, your writing, your work, uh, and they want to learn more? Uh, well, you can just look at uh, me up at Manhattan Institute's website, or, or look at a lot of my writings on this have been for uh, City Journal, Manhattan Institute's uh, policy magazine. So either place would be a great uh, way to look at some of the things I've written. Wonderful. I love City Journal and, and Manhattan Institute. I appreciate your writing your work and all the work the, uh, the uh, think tank does. So thank you for being on Hubwong today, Judge. Uh, you've been a great asset, and I, I'm sure our, our listeners learned a lot. Thank you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would also make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me about future episode topics, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk. Thank you.